Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Um, whereas we might be worried about having a bit of a taxing day at work, uh, somebody else is worried about taxing. Where's she seen that? Oh, what a link. You know, another good reason why we should talk about tax today. Uh, no, I'm like, what date is it? It's the middle of April. That's it's, it's the 5th it, of April. It is oh, the, it's last the start of the new- day of the tax year. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I what can imagine exciting- you do your tax return way earlier than the <laughs> deadline, Ewan. I did it. Several days before the deadline. (laughs) Anyway, after a quarter of taxpayers could be paying an effective higher tax rate than Rishi Sunak. This is according to some research by the Economic Change Unit, which campaigns for higher wealth taxes. Apparently, the £1.6 million in capital gains that the PM reported was taxed at 20%, whereas the overall tax rate on his other income was 37%. That means he effectively paid the same rate as people on salaries of about 40 grand a year. That is, of course, because capital gains are taxed at 20% or 28% for property, whereas income for high earners is taxed at uh, 40 to 45%. Although it should be said that both taxes are set for cheeky increases over the next couple of years, with the lowering of the threshold for CGT. And our old friend, I know Lizzie Burden's a big fan of this, our old friend Fiscal Drag uh, kicking in. Income tax. If I were ever to do drag, I'd want it to be fiscal drag. Oh my God, Stephen. <laughs> no, but it's a big ideological debate, isn't it? It's about the concept of quote unquote unearned wealth and whether you need to pay as much or more tax on that. And dare dare, dare you to mention unearned wealth in front of the constituent, the you know big voters for the Tory party. And, and I think I think the, the opposing argument is that you've already paid tax on it once. So if you then invest it wisely and it makes another gain, you shouldn't pay you know, another load of tax on it again. That is the opposing argument. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's not a question of there being anything inappropriate in this, but it is, you know, another Mm. chance that we have that we're seeing a campaign group in this case raise the issue of Rishi Sunak's wealth uh, and thus how much tax he paid and using that as a, a stick, I suppose, to to wave at him or beat him with depending on the the your metaphor of choice. So, I mean, it's interesting to see if this this particular strand will be picked up by the Labour Party. Yeah, I mean, because it's interesting that the Tories are already actually widening the scope of CGT uh, halving and then halving again the threshold. So lots of people, well, not lots of people, because most people don't make any capital gains, but people who have capital gains are all being dragged into CGT, whereas uh, they weren't paying it before. So they're already uh, milking that particular cow. The research did look actually at how many people in the constituency that 10 Downing Street is in, so the cities of London and Westminster, uh, are paying as much tax and it says that more than half of those who live in the same constituency are likely to be paying a higher effective tax rate 
Yes, that is a very, very wealthy constituency. Uh, exactly. Presumably the most wealthy in the country. Yeah, high, highest median income of, of any UK constituency according to the 2020 to 2021 tax year data. £46,000 is the figure uh, they have for that. So it's quite enough uh, taxes and figures for now. I wanted to turn next to some news from Scotland about the SNP. Police in Scotland have arrested a 58-year-old man in connection with an ongoing investigation into the funding and finances of the Scottish National Party. Police Scotland say the man is in custody and has been questioned by detectives. Officers are carrying out searches at a number of addresses as part of this investigation. For about 18 months now, Police Scotland have been looking into whether £600,000 of donations to the SNP for independence campaigning may have been used for other purposes. So this arrest, the latest development uh, in that campaign uh, and definitely something to watch uh, for more developments later too. Elsewhere, Britain's biggest lobby group, the Confederation of British Industry, has postponed all its public events following allegations of sexual harassment, drug use and misconduct among its staff. Our UK business reporter, Sabah Meddings, has been following this story and she's with us in the studio now. Thanks for being with us. What have the CBI said about these allegations? So far, the CBI has said it treats and continues to treat all matters of workplace conduct with the utmost serious. It has got an external law firm to launch an investigation and told us to expect an update after Easter. It's also cancelled its events. Um, those will be reviewed after Easter as well, but particularly the annual um, dinner, the flagship city dinner from the CBI has also been cancelled. Now that's a, a big event, ministers attend, often the Chancellor may speak, so that's um, a pretty big blow for the organisation. Yeah, that's a, bit, that's a big fundraiser obviously for the CBI. Uh, what are some of the businesses you've been speaking to, members of the CBI, what have they been saying about this? There's an element of caution, many are saying they're going to wait until the outcome of the investigation um, after ESA before they make a decision, but there is a sense that um, some will be re- renewing their um, their membership. EY has said the allegations are extremely concerning. We've heard from MNS, which wrote to the CBI on Monday to seek reassurances that they were taking this all very seriously and they said they would continue to talk to the CBI as it progresses. Yeah, interesting to see how businesses are reacting to that. Now, the CBI is an important player in terms of lobbying power in politics. How significant is the group when we think about it in, in the frame of politics? If you think about um, big events such as the budget, um, autumn statement, you know, talking as a, a, a collective voice for business. I mean, um, the the the, industry, the lobby group has talked um, very extensive, extensively about um, promoting growth in the UK, big focus on green growth, and they don't mind coming out and being a critical voice when they disagree with um, government policies. So, in terms of sort of deferring to the CBI to to be that voice um, to 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 lobby on behalf of industry, they are they are pretty important. They've got one hundred ninety thousand members, lots of events across the UK. People really see them as a kind of a way to also network in in the regions. They're good at sort of um, with the levelling up agenda, certainly uh, providing a voice for those those parts of the UK. So yeah, they, they're pretty important. Yeah, you and I were at the CBI's annual yes, conference yeah. last year and it really was a big moment for Rishi Sunak um, in his early days as Prime Minister to make his speech there and also for Keir Starmer to exactly. uh, get that applause in the room. Everybody wondering which is now the party of business who's getting the applause the loudest. So really a big moment in the calendar. Yeah, the CBI's got an independent inquiry ongoing at the moment. They say they hope to get the first uh, uh, report back from that uh, after Easter. So that is, of course, just uh, next week. Sabah Meddings, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Now, how good, Lizzie Burden, are you at tongue twisters? Can you say the name of the new trade treaty? CPTPP.
Oh, very good. You've been <laughs> practicing. I covered trade for many years, Stephen, I'll have you know. Oh, well, well look, it's, it's gives you trade and the alphabet, apparently. So <laughs> perhaps it's leaving you in good stead uh, to talk about this new progressive, uh, comprehensive and progressive agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, the news, of course, we had last week that the UK joined that deal. It is the first trade deal signed with a major trading bloc since Brexit. Well, UK Investment Minister Dominic Johnson is in Singapore attempting to drum up investment for British business at the moment. Uh, Bloomberg's Haslinda Amin and Yvonne Mann caught up with him for an interview. From my point of view, I've had an amazing trip. We've been in Australia, Japan, now I've arrived in beautiful Singapore. And one of the things I've noticed is firstly how excited those countries are that we've joined CPTPP, and also how the UK is their premier investment destination. So this is a a fabulous time to be in the region, to celebrate the beginning of the process to join one of the great free trade groups of the world. You talk about how CPTPP is important. Can you quantify how much in terms of GDP the UK will benefit and how will that counter the 4% exit, uh, 4% GDP uh, from the exit of Brexit because of Brexit? Yeah, well, it's fair enough to, to ask, you know, what is the post-Brexit vision of Britain for the UK government? And, it, and it's twofold. It's one, to have tariff and quota-free access to the European Union. And then it's to sit atop a geostrategic web of trading relationships that give us access to the rest of the world. So in my view, and I've been in business for nearly 30 years before I went into politics, it, the CPTPP gives us that second part whilst protecting our sovereignty. So that's what I like about it. It's a, it's a truly free trade uh, programme that allows you to also run your own affairs as a domestic economy. It's very hard to forecast what effect trade deals will have on countries. A good example is New Zealand and China. They forecast 3 billion additional trade a year, whereas I think within five years it was 30 billion a year. For me as a business person, CPTPP gives us tariff-free access to a whole range uh, of, of, of markets, which is very important. But it also removes, removes friction. So in business, it's not just about the cash cost, it's also about the ease of doing business. Yeah. And the final point is that you know, we want to encourage businesses to export, we want to encourage Asian companies and, and businesses and Pacific businesses to invest in the UK. And even just by talking about it, coming on your show, talking about CPTPP, talking about free trade and trade liberalisation raises the salience of these really important concepts and that helps boost the economy in many intangible ways. I mean, you already have several free trade agreements. I think, it's, I think including Australia, it's about eight now. So I'm wondering, does membership of, of CPTPP actually deliver much more benefit to, to what I already have? Uh, yeah, it does. It's, it's huge. I mean, don't forget, we can still have parallel relationships. So I took through the Australian-New Zealand trade deal through Parliament very recently, which is a great thing to celebrate, and I was doing that when I was in Australia. But it also gives the UK access to the Malaysian market. Um, and very importantly, the whole rules of origin process, which allows you know design, manufacture, assembly, and distribution to happen across the whole group uh, at, at a very, very low tariff or tariff-free rate. That's enormously positive. And the one thing I would say about CPTPP, is it's a live agreement. I find that very attractive. So gone are the days of just doing a fixed trade deal where you know all the conditions were set and there was no forward movement or change or evolution. And this agreement is, is, is a continually evolving one. So we're going to look to do more in terms of digital services, professional qualifications, recognition, uh, and advanced manufacturing and investment. So you know, this is the beginning of a journey. We're really pleased to be invited to join last Friday. It was a great moment of celebration in the UK. And as I said, travelling around Asia and Australasia, um, the reaction to us joining us 
has, been, has just been wonderful. I mean, it's, it's culturally important too. You know, this is the brotherhood of nations. It's about enriching yeah. each other through free trade, and I really celebrate that. And it's interesting, while we debate whether you know, the CPTPP can compensate for, for Brexit, you know, the UK is thousands of miles away from the trans-Pacific supply chain. So how can the UK further integrate into the supply chains here in the region, you think? Well, the UK is going to be in a fabulous position because it has access to Europe tariff and quota free and it's going to sit in these sorts of trading relationships like the CPTPP, as well as the, the um, relationships we're working on countries like India, which are going to be very important long term. So if you're thinking, where do I mm. locate my international headquarters? It has to be the UK because no other country is going to give you that access to the international trade routes. And, and my last point, which is really important, is the popular, and I, as I said, I spent my whole life in investment management before going into politics, in, particularly in global emerging markets. The populations, the dynamic economies, the, the growth, you know, the, the invention and innovation is taking place uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. And so the UK is absolutely right to say, OK, where in the world do we want to be at the very epicenter of those trading networks? And it's part of our Indo-Pacific tilt. So strategically, it makes complete sense. And economically, it makes uh, sense as well. Minister, you talk about India realistically. When can we expect a trade deal with India? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, we're in negotiations at the moment. You know, these things, they take time. The, these are very complicated, long-term um, collaborative projects, and we want to get them right. You know, the Indian government wants to get them right. The UK government wants to get them right too. You know, the important thing is, over the next few months, we work out a deal that works for both sides, that we can really embrace. And I'm very excited when I think of what London has to offer in terms of a financial liquid centre, in terms of acting as a funnel for investment into India. You know, the opportunities in India are immense. And so for us to be allied alongside them, still alongside the EU, and at the centre of the CPTPP, I think it's enormously exciting when you think of, you know, what's the post-Brexit vision of Britain? Well, this is it, and it's going to be enormous. Minister, we have China, we have Taiwan next in line uh, to potentially join CPTPP. I'm just wondering, what would be the UK's position on that? Would you block China's application? Well, you know, to be honest, we've only just been given permission to exceed, so I don't think it's my, my place to decide who comes in or out of the relationship. But what I will say, though, is that in the UK, at a time when many countries in the world are actually putting up borders, increasing friction, and heading towards protectionism, we have an absolutely unambiguous policy towards trade liberalisation. And that's really important. So any projection that we can be part of that enables that philosophy to be expanded around the world is good for the UK and, frankly, it's good for the global economy. So let the CPTPP act as a, act as a beacon of trade liberalisation, free trade, economic growth and fundamental co-security. Uh, these are challenging times, uh, Minister. We have the US and China bickering just about over everything. We have an impending recession, perhaps in the US as well, later this year. What's the UK's trade playbook amid such conditions? Well, very well made points in terms of you know, geo-economic issues, and I heard in your, your program earlier, you know, discussing just those points. For me, the crucial component is to control inflation. If we can get inflation down in the UK, we'll reduce the cost of capital and interest rates, which totally enhances our ability to be an investment destination and a successful, thriving economy. And that's what we've been doing. If you look at the budget uh, two weeks ago, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, absolute focus on getting inflation under control and reducing the cost of capital. And for me, in my lifetime, 
over the last 30 years, I've seen a steady downtrend in inflation, which has been hugely beneficial to all our lives. That reversed about three, four years ago, and obviously uh, increased significantly over the last 18 months. So, so our focus is on making sure that our economy is strong and predictable, and our interest rates are at the lowest possible level in terms of cost of capital, and we focus on controlling inflation. And that requires discipline, it requires fiscal discipline, and we've seen that, as I say, in the government's actions over the last uh, six months or so. And the second point is, where do we invest? And the Prime Minister is determined to make us into a science and technology superpower, and that flows into startup, life sciences, venture, clean energy into the UK are really second only to the US. So you know, my job is to go around and make sure that the world sees how powerful the UK is in the economy, not just in terms of its overall size, in terms of liquid markets for financial services, but in terms of our science and technology capabilities and our brains and intellectual capital right. that is seeing huge interest globally. As I said at the beginning, you know, I've traveled around Asia. Their premier destination for their capital, aside from their domestic market, is the UK because of what we're offering uh, Minister, at both ends of the economic spectrum. Uh, lots of talk about onshoring, friendshoring. What's the outlook for globalization, you think? So I only, I only heard this phrase, friendshoring, uh, when I was in, in Australia, uh, and I was rather intrigued by that. I mean, I think that this is what CPTPP offers. I think it's a, it's a great word. I'm, I'm, I'm taking it up as soon as I get back to the UK. Uh, and it's completely right. You know, no, no country should be or should want to be self-sufficient in, in every area. That's the whole point about global trade uh, and the opportunities that we have in trading with our friend countries, making sure that we reduce friction so that we can um, uh, ensure supply chains function. I mean, we, we want to act in the UK as a beacon for free trade and trade liberalisation around the world. I mean, that's, that's at the core of it. And we want to work with our partner countries to make sure that we can uh, create the products that our consumer societies are going to need in, in the future. So, you know, we're, we're, we're behind all these um, principles such as CPTPP, trade deals with India and other countries around the world to make sure that we build a very strong network of alliances where we can supply each other, we can increase each other's economic productivity through intellectual capital exchange, manufacture and service provision. Well, that was uh, the UK Investment Minister, Dominic Johnson, speaking to Bloomberg's Haslinda Amin and Yvonne uh, Mann in Singapore. Of course, did, did their valiant best, I think, to try and get <laughs> him to compare the uh, gain from this new treaty to the loss uh, from Brexit. But uh, I don't think they managed to quite he, get He wasn't going to go down that. Didn't, so. didn't take that particular bait. I don't know. Listening to that, Lizzie, what do you think? Well, trade experts love to talk about gravity and how you can't change gravity. But of course, the UK government wants to change the centre of gravity to make it further east. Um, I thought it was really interesting, his comments on the potential for an India trade deal. He said that, of course, negotiations take time. There was a lot of hope, if you remember, when Rishi Sunak took over as Prime Minister given the warm welcome he got from Narendra Modi. Um, but, of course, it is notoriously difficult to get a trade deal with India, not just for the UK, but for other countries as well. Having reported on trade, what people always tell me is that anything you ask India for, they end up going off and researching, and you know, they're, they're, there's not so much known. So it takes ages to just go on that fact-finding mission, and it stalls the process even more. The other thing I'd say is... Yes, this is an achievement, um, but really, when Liz Truss was trade minister before she was foreign secretary, tra trade secretary before she was foreign secretary and then prime minister, she sort of swept up the easy uh, trade deals to get post Brexit and all the copy and paste um, exercises that she could have done. You know, the Japan's and um, Australia, uh, and the one that we still haven't seen is, U is the US. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think I think it's fair to say that this is. 
this includes a lot of people. It's 500 million people, and total GDP of these countries in, involved in the CPTPP, I can't say it as quickly as you, Lizzie, uh, is 11 trillion pounds. So it, it is it is a big deal. But the trouble is, all but two of these countries, we already had trade deals with. So apart from Malaysia, which is a reasonable size, and Brunei, which is definitely not, we actually already had deals with these countries. So it really doesn't add a great deal to, to GDP. Yeah, did you have to leave the European Union to get it? That's the point. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, that's one uh, interesting to hear those points made by the UK Investment Minister, Dominic Johnson. But we're going to turn to a different story um, now. The founding father of Britain's current system of banking regulation has raised concerns about the exception that was granted to HSBC when it rescued the UK arm of Silicon Valley Bank. Liz- Lizzie, this is a story that you've been uh, covering extensively. When you read these comments from John Vickers, what do you think? Well, I do like to think that I'm ahead of the curve, Steve. This was a question that we were asking at the time when we found out that HSBC was buying SVB UK for a pound. Look, what we what we reported at the time was that the government uh, had proposed that there should be a waiver to ring fencing requirements, even though HSBC was only paying a pound. And what John Vickers has said is that it's a bad idea to have a hole in the fence because he was one of the, um, as you say, founding fathers of the ring fencing. Uh, requirements. Now, these requirements came in after the financial crisis. The whole idea is that they separate banks' retail divisions from their investment and international banking activities. So the point is to protect the man in the street when it all goes wrong. Um, And at the time when HSBC did this deal, I spoke to the city minister, Andrew Griffith, um, and he said that the government's interests, and I'm quoting, were to get a quick conclusion to this to protect depositors. Because if you remember, the worry was that so many of the clients of SVB UK were in the tech sector. And that's at the heart of the Chancellor's vision to grow the economy and, as you even heard in that interview there with Dominic Johnson, to make the UK, um, did he call it the new Silicon Valley? I'm not sure if we're even using that term anymore. Um, But it was also interesting to get these comments from John Vickers because he was formerly the Bank of England's chief economist. And I'm interested to hear how many other Bank of England policymakers agree with his worries about waiving the fencing requirements. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt if they'd sort of left it to, to, to you know, to, to go under, it would have been pretty bad for an important sector of the economy. Um, definitely. And, you know, the, the tech sector's already taken that blow with ARM choosing to list in the UK. There's actually a, a really interesting piece on the terminal um, using Bloomberg data um, to, to look at Uh, It says that the London IPO drought is worse than in New York. So, of course, we've had a really difficult time in most major markets with IPOs because of high inflation. Um, But the slump really is worse, especially bad here in the UK because of the uncertainty around the economy not helping to stir up investor appetite. And it's not just ARM that's chosen to list in New York. You've also seen CRH, Abcam, BHP moving their listings away from London. So at the time, it was very interesting important to hold on to our tech firms. Mm, Lizzie, you mentioned the BOE a minute ago. I know that you are watching your phone very closely at the corner of your eye for a potentially 
very important announcement relating to the BOE that's coming, we're yeah. told. Well, the big dove, Silvana Tenreiro, we know has only got two more meetings left. So we're expecting to find out her successor from the Treasury this week. And given that she's the big dove, she's always warning um, about the delay in monetary policy transmission, uh, that we need to be aware that previous jumbo hikes may yet have to take full effect if she's replaced, let's say, with someone even slightly more hawkish, it would change the balance on the committee. And she was actually saying yesterday that the um, the inflation's likely to fall well below target if you don't get more counterbalancing cost push shocks. Um, so this is just how dovish she is. Now, in terms of runners and riders, you've got some interesting names. Sarah Hewin, who's the head of research for Europe and the Americas at Standard Chartered. Mm-hmm. Also, friend, friend of the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, Jamana Salahin, who's chief economist at Vanguard Asset Management. She's often floating around the Bloomberg studio. Um, because remember, the balance on the committee at the moment is you've got... Um, the women who are the external members, which means that it's usually the men who are making the decisions. Um, but to lose Silvana Tenreiro would be to lose another woman on the MPC. So it's mainly the women who are looking to be the runners and riders at the moment. Mm, a dove flying the nest. Oh, me... Ewan. Sorry, I had to go there. <laughs> I like to think if I ever had a if I had a podcast about the Bank of England, it would be called Bird Watching. Nice. Nice, like this it. is good. You, you've well, thought about this, you, haven't you? you? you <laughs> Consider this your listening. pitch. <laughs> uh, look, another story that's caught my eye today is some new uh, polling around the Windsor framework uh, in Northern Ireland. So, of course, we know that the UK government and the EU have signed off on the deal. Uh, we're still waiting, though, for the verdict from the Democratic Unionist Party, the largest unionist party in Northern Ireland. They've expressed their concerns about it, aren't showing any signs of returning to power sharing at the Stormont Executive, which is really was the main goal of getting this deal uh, in the first place. Public polling, though, seems to be strongly in favour uh, of the Windsor Framework deal. That's according to this poll carried out by Lucid Talk for Queen's University Belfast. 70% of voters in Northern Ireland think the Windsor Framework could bring economic benefits to the region. Two-thirds believe in that the Northern Ireland executive should be re-established uh, after this deal between the EU and the UK. Uh, sort of representing, I suppose, what we'd heard even beforehand. If you look back to the last Assembly election in Northern Ireland, the majority of MLAs elected at that election were in favour of the uh, as the previous version of this as it was called the, the Northern Ireland backstop or the, the version of it the Northern Ireland protocol uh, that had governed those trade relations acknowledging that there was uh, benefits for uh, Northern Ireland by staying in the EU single market as well as having access to the UK's um, market as well so interesting to see some polling around this looking at where um people are feeling in Northern Ireland. This was conducted, uh, this poll was conducted um, in between the 18th and 21st of March, so three weeks after the deal was announced. It's some time for people to consider the consequences of it as well. I mean, yeah. you've really got your ear to the ground with this, Stephen. Is it just because Rishi Sunak did such a good PR job? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that it, it, if you listen to business groups and the ones that we speak to about this as well, is that, you know, they did see the potential in the arrangements of Northern Ireland being with this foot in two markets. It was the practical difficulties that were the problems. Many of them had been the fact that the rules weren't really being applied in this interim period while they looked for the negotiation. Essentially, the Windsor Framework provides stability, tells us that those trickier elements, the rules, won't be applied. So that's something that, I suppose, gives some relief to businesses and most important predictability. But what they all want, and they've all called for repeatedly, is the idea of getting the executive back up and running. No sign of that for now anyway.
Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.